0: Welcome to the City Church Podcast. We hope that you will be abundantly blessed by this message. If you would like to find out more about the city, please log on to our website, www.thecity.sg. Well, uh, today, you know, is Vision Sunday, and uh, I don't know how many of you, uh, you know, have been to one of these uh, Vision Sundays, and usually for a Vision weekend, uh, churches will take some time to set direction uh, to unfold upcoming plans, as well as um, you know, uh, perhaps call the church to a certain kind of action or to raise uh, support and awareness for certain kingdom initiatives. And so there's a rich tradition uh, behind Vision Sunday. Many churches practice it. Uh, we do it every now and then. I think it's important for us to come back and centre ourselves and, and posture ourselves towards uh, what God's purpose and intent is for our church. And so we thought it would be good for us to do that. You no, know, we've been coming back together, gathering like that for the last two months already, oscillating between the different clusters. And so uh, we thought it would be such a great opportunity to just revisit uh, the, the vision of our church. And so it's more of a revision Sunday than a vision Sunday. And so we're just coming back to what we've uh, always felt God speak to us. I don't know. I, I made a graphic, and if you ask me what the oval stands for, I have no idea. Maybe eight new births? I don't know. Yeah. Up to your interpretation. Let the seers interpret. Um, yeah, and so, you know, what's going to happen is I, I'm going to go into the Word, you know, um, just share a few thoughts. I'm going to share some plans we have for the, for the year, and then we're going to watch a video together. What is Vision Sunday without videos? We are like Netflix Sunday, and so uh, all good. <laughs> Well, uh, before we get started, I'd like to just perform a little exercise. Not the physical kind, mental kind. Because I'm not dressed for it. My s- jeans are way too tight. These are straight cut jeans, by the way. I'm just, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I can turn anything skinny. Because, you know. Ah, 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 ah. You laugh, but it comes from a deep place of pain. Whatever. Everyone, close your eyes. Close your eyes. We are doing exercise. Close your eyes now. (laughs) Second service, you are my people. All right. Close your eyes. Okay. I'm going to say a word. And I want you to just picture uh, whatever I say uh, in your mind. And then uh, we'll we'll move on with that. What comes to mind when I say the word waffles? Waffles. W-A-F-F-L-E-S. Waffles. All right. You have that image? Okay. Open your eyes. Can I have my slide up? How many of you saw the image on your on the right? Ice cream and waffles? few of you? Huh? Oh, sorry. How many of you saw the, that one, that one? Ice cream and waffles? How many? Okay. few of you. How many of you saw that out, the other one? Floated? Oh, my Prima Deli people. Yeah? Yeah? So that's that's waffles to me, you know? Waffle in a bag full of grease and oil. It's messy. Peanut butter, Nutella, Kaya. That is waffles. Okay. I know. Dumb exercise. Okay, never mind. Okay. You know, I, I, another point I will make, you know, if I were to spin all of you all in a circle right now, you know, and just spin you around, I ask you to point north, chances are we'll have uh, people pointing in every conceivable direction. So here's the point I will make. When we talk about church, and more specifically our church, we talk about vision, purpose, intent, chances are we'll have different images that come up, and different ideas of what direction is or where direction is. And hence we need Sundays like this to recenter our community around a common, united vision. That is the importance of a Sunday like this. Are you hearing me? Right? Look at Andre turning waffle into an allergy. <laughs> I'm just kidding, just kidding. This is not humility at all. It's, it's not, not at all. Um, and so, you know. I'm also aware, um, you know, when we talk about church and and our participation in church that many of us are here for um, different reasons, or we are all here for different reasons. Some of of you are in the church, you've decided to stay because you love the community, you enjoy the fellowship, you enjoy the people. Some of you have stayed because uh, location is great, you know, we are in between two train train lines. That's that's a good consideration, very convenient to get to. Uh, Some of you like... Uh, perhaps the vibrancy, the energy you know, in the hall. Some of you appreciate the worship team for the fantastic job they do every, every weekend, right? Some of you might be here for the teaching. I don't know. Okay, I guess that was too little, too late. But anyway, <laughs> uh, but some of you might be here for that, you know, and we are all here for different reasons, or we have all chosen to be part of the city for different reasons. But today, I'd like to humbly put across to you the reason why you are here. And what this is about, and what our church is posture, is purpose and intent. We believe by the Spirit and by God to do, to 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 establish and advance God's kingdom on the earth. And so, this is what I'd like to present to you this morning as our vision Sunday. Sorry, revision Sunday. Right before we begin, let's uh, read God's word together from Habakkuk chapter three. It's one of my favorite passages in the Bible. And just a backdrop on this, uh, this verse was. Uh, You know, the background of this verse was during Judah's kind of moral and spiritual decline. In Habakkuk 1, God gives his people a set of promises. And Habakkuk 3 is kind of God's people's response to uh, the promises to which uh, he has given his people. So Habakkuk 3 says this in God's word. Lord, I have heard of your fame. I stand in awe of your deeds, Lord. Repeat them in our day. In our time, make them known. In wrath, remember mercy. I read it again, so good. Lord, I've heard of your fame. I stand in awe of your deeds, Lord. Repeat them in our day. Do it again. In our time, make them known. In wrath, remember mercy. This is the word of Lord. Let's begin in prayer. Jesus, we acknowledge your presence in this place. God, we know your presence is not just mere feelings, but your presence is your very person. You are here in our midst. And God, we honour you. We honour you, for you are faithful and true. Indeed, your word testifies of this, that when your people are gathered in your name, you are here with us. We acknowledge your presence, Jesus. We proclaim that you are Lord in this place. Above all other things, you are Lord in this place. May you be glorified, King Jesus. And Lord, we pray even in this exploration through scripture, may you be glorified. May your name be proclaimed to all generations through our lives and through uh, our church. And God, we pray that even as we dive into scripture, that we will not be provoked by the mere words of men, but we will be led by your spirit. Spirit of God, we ask that you will come and have your way in this place. Speak to us, we pray. Come as you will. Come wind, come fire, come teacher, come counselor. Come meet with us. We open up our hearts to you. We make room for you in this place. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, uh, the sociologist Rodney Stark, he wrote uh, this couple of books that are are brilliant, The Rise of Christianity and the Triumph of Christianity, uh, states that the the growth of the early church was arguably the most remarkable sociological event in all of human history. In AD 40, there were roughly 1,000 Christians. And by the time uh, of AD 350, there were around, there were almost 30 million Christians in the span of 310 years, the church grew from a 1,000 to 30 million. A remarkable 53% of the Roman Empire population had converted to the Christian faith, had professed Christianity, Jesus is Lord. And in his book, Triumph of Christianity, he writes this about Jesus. He was a teacher and miracle worker who spent nearly all of his brief ministry in the tiny and obscure province of Galilee, often preaching to outdoor gatherings, A few listeners took up his invitation to follow him, and a dozen or so became his devoted disciples. But when he was executed by the Romans, his followers probably numbered no more than 700. How was it possible for this obscure Jewish sect to become the largest religion in the world? How did this happen? Jesus had a really short ministry on the earth, about three years, and in the middle of nowhere, and he brings the Roman Empire to its knees. And when you take a step back further and observe the kind of disciples that Jesus had, it would seem even more implausible, right? The disciples were untrained men who failed uh, as often as they thrived, right? Peter kept returning to fishing. James and John wanted to call down fire on the very people that Jesus came to save. Thomas doubted, and Jesus and Judas betrayed him. And the early church leaders did have stuff that we consider as absolutely essential for church life. They didn't have official church buildings. They didn't have vision statements or core values. They didn't have social media. They didn't have fancy celebrity pastors with their fancy sneakers. They didn't have live stream services for you to watch from the comfort of your own home. They didn't have any of that. Yet the church grew in a remarkable way. How is that possible? How did this happen? All this raises significant questions. How could a Jewish political rebel crucified on a Roman cross become the savior of the very empire that killed him? What on earth could compel more than half an empire to convert? What on earth is so compelling about Jesus that his name is still proclaimed some 2,000 years later? What is so compelling about Jesus and this church. And it's with that that we read this passage of scripture in Acts chapter 2, familiar text, but I pray it will stir in you a fresh vision that doesn't come by the persuasion of my words, but by the Holy Spirit. Hear the word of the Lord in Acts 2. It says this about the church. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe added to their number daily, those who were being saved. Now, one of the questions that has emerged in the church circle, and I believe in many of your hearts, is this, what is next for the church? And we're probably not just thinking about our church, but the church globally, right? After the year that we've experienced, after, you know, we've had to adapt and pivot and adjust to what is deemed as the new normal, what is next for the church? What has to change, or what is the kind of change that the spirit is bringing into a church? And these are very, and that's a very valid question and a very valid uh, observation and exploration. You know, the church has to lean into the spirit, the new work that the spirit is trying to bring about. a Church, we have to adjust and adapt to the cultural, uh, you know, to the cultural needs. We also have to adjust and adapt to what the spirit is trying to birth in the church. We need to have that kind of nimbleness and dexterity to lean into the Spirit's work and not just be stuck in our old ways. But here's the truth, whenever we talk about change, we think of change primarily in two ways. First is a kind of structural change. How do we change things structurally? Perhaps it has to do with leadership. How is leadership organized? Can we perhaps be more disorganized, and you know, such that more people are empowered? Is that something that we need to explore, a structural change? Or we think of a methodological change, right? Maybe we can change the way we run services. Maybe we don't need to have service every week. Maybe you we can do live groups more than we do service. We can gather once a month, or we can do a digital thing. The church can be a digital church with a physical kind of expression. Or, you know, are we supposed to be a physical church with a digital platform? All very valid questions and explorations. But I'd like to suggest a third kind of change that I believe the Spirit is bringing to a church, and that is a postural change a postural change, a change in posture. The way we approach what we already have, how we view the church, our participation, contribution, and role in it. I believe the Spirit is bringing about a postural change. And too often, we get caught up in structure and methodology and miss out the internal work that God is trying to do in us. Making sense? And what I'd like to suggest is much of the change the Spirit is trying to bring about through 2020 is an internal one, the way we are postured, the way we approach the things of God. Because we can change structure and methodology all we want, but if the people of God remain uninterested and callous to the things of God, when the novelty of brand new and shiny goes away, we will essentially end up back where we started. It's a postural change. Am I, am I making sense? It's sort of fundamental postural change. All I suggest we need to come to is this. Whatever we just read in Acts chapter 2 isn't just a history, historical account, or or something that we read that happened in the past. But we all, all of us, not just clergy, but all of us need to long, burn, and ache for what we just read. Acts chapter 2, this is the vision of what the church community is to be. All of us need to burn an egg for this. Am I making sense? Because church isn't about what we get out of it. It isn't just about how we feel. It isn't just about knowledge transference or content. It isn't just about the songs that we sing. The church is to be a preview of the inbreaking of God's kingdom to our world. That is what we are called to be. That is the church. And so when you read Acts 2, Don't just read off their methodology or the way they're structured. Observe the values. Observe the fruit that was born in that community. A robust discipleship. Mm -hmm. Love demonstrated to one another. And the Lord adding to their number daily. Observe the fruit and long for the same. Now, when we look at the Acts 2 church, you know, we are... Let back to the same question, what made them so compelling? What made them so different and distinct from the culture to which they were in? For me, I observed three things that were present in the x 2 church, and I hope these will ignite a fresh vision in you. First is this, theology that cannot be dismissed. That was present in the x 2 church. The next, power that cannot be denied. The last is this, love that cannot be deterred. Theology that cannot be dismissed, power that can't be denied, and a love that cannot be deterred. That was what was present in the Acts 2 community and made them also compelling. Let me do a bit of work on each of these observations. So, the first is this: theology that cannot be dismissed. It says in 42, they devoted themselves. To the apostles' teaching. That word devotion modifies everything that we've read in the text. It implies this deep sense of commitment. Because for the early church, faith was not just an addition to life, it was a reframing of life itself. It wasn't just a shift or change in the way they scheduled their lives. Or it was just, it wasn't just a blip in their schedule. But it was a reframing of life itself, reframing their priorities, what they deem as important, what their life's pursuit is, what they deem success is. It was a reframing, a reorientation of life itself. That is what repentance is. It's not just sorrow. It's changing the way you think, yes, but it is more accurately a reordering, a reframing, a tearing down of the old and allegiance to the new. That is what it means to follow Jesus wholeheartedly. Our priorities, what we deem as important and successful, is reframed and reoriented to God's ways. Now, bobet Buster said, "This narrative is our culture's currency. He who tells the best story wins." Now, I don't know whether you are aware of this or not, but all of, all of us, humanity live by a story. We all live by the stories we believe and therefore by the worldviews we adopt from those stories. A narrative by which we make sense of the big questions of our world, right? Why are we here? Who are we? What's wrong? How do we fix it? The story we live in is the story we live out. And we're living in a time of history that in many ways is defined as story wars or a narrative war. And that is to say people, organizations, and companies are competing for your mind space, either through social media or just big billboard advertising. They're competing for your mind space to build brand allegiance. And their primary tool is a compelling narrative. And that is to say if you watch an advertisement and it seems to suggest to you that your life is incomplete without this thousand track count white sheets, chances are you are buying into a narrative. And some narratives that we battle consistently are narratives about what life is to be about. It's life is about making more money. It's life about gaining more influence. It's life about accumulation and access. It's life about enjoying while it, while it lasts. And the biggest, one of the core narratives that we battle against is this, that life is so much more than the kingdom of God. Life is so much more than what the church is. Christ is to just be an addition, just a part of my life we battle that narrative many of us almost on a daily basis now switching gears ever so slightly if I were to ask you today what is the quintessential breakfast we are Singaporeans, so many of you will go eggs and toast. but let me rephrase what is the quintessential American breakfast many of you will go bacon and eggs have my picture up bacon and eggs nice, greasy, oily bacon and eggs. That is not kosher. How did bacon, we are asked, become associated with the American breakfast? I know, I'm, commu- I'm committing like sermon suicide by showing you two pictures of food right, right at 12, 11, right before lunch. And many of you are going to get distracted and have your attention frazzled, but press through, people. God wants to speak to you. Press through the discomfort. Amen. Well, how did bacon become associated with the American breakfast? I'd like to introduce you to a person named Edward Bernays. Edward Bernays. And Edward Bernays is known as the father of public relations. He's known as the father of public relations. And a bit of background on who Bernays is. He started his career during the war years working for uh, the US government on the community, Committee of on Public Information. And it was a government propaganda kind of machine that used Uh, several mediums like posters, newspapers, and film to advocate for support of the American intervention uh, in the European war. And towards the end of the war, he began to ask himself uh, uh, the question, what if the tools, the strategy, the approach I use for wartime propaganda, what if it had a peacetime application? Can I use the same mechanics, the same strategy, that I work for wartime propaganda and use it for peacetime pursuits, meaning organizations and peoples can adopt the same strategy to push narrative. And not to mention, Bernays was the nephew of Sigmund Freud. And so Freud, right, we know psychology, right? He took his uncle's understanding of human psychology on an individual level and mass produced it, right? using it on a mass scale to manipulate society on a psychological level. Drawing from the insights of Uncle Sigmund, he developed an approach he dubbed the engineering of consent. Wow, engineering of consent. And that means that he provided ways for leaders to control and regiment the masses according to their will, without them even knowing about it. In 1928, he wrote this book called Propaganda. And in this book, he has this haunting quote. I'd like to read to you. He says this The conscious and intelligent manipulation of the organized habits and opinions of the masses is an important element in democratic society. Those who manipulate this unseen mechanism of society constitute an invisible government, which is the true ruling power of our country. Isn't that haunting? That beneath the surface, there is an invisible power that is seeking to form your loves, longings, and desire. And so, when that bacon company had their sales drop, they approached Bernays. And uh, Bernays went to his uh, agency's internal doctor and was like, yo, like the bacon sales are dropping. Can we come up with a report? And he, you know, the the, the, the story goes: the doctor uh, suspected to have confirmed this due to his position with the company, said yes. He said yes to. Uh, this uh, proposition that Bernays said that perhaps you know, Americans should go back to their heavy breakfast routines instead of preferring cereal and stuff like that. And so Bernays then got his doctor to write to around 5,000 of his peers to confirm that a heavier breakfast was actually better for you. And they produced a quote-unquote study from the other doctor's confirmations and published it in major newspapers all throughout the country. And just like that, the American breakfast was reformed. And I don't have time to go into all of Bernaysa's work on hairnets and beer, but his, his best work, best or worst work, however you approach it, uh, has to do with tobacco.
1: What is my point?
0: My point is, or my point isn't, do not eat bacon anymore. Because it's all propaganda. No, not, not that. Or, you know, everything is a conspiracy. Or leave your PR drop. None of that. My point is this. Is that it's a simple fact that we do not live in neutral space. That there are forces, whether human or supernatural, that are seeking to form you in very real ways. They are seeking to influence the way you think, to influence the way you deem what you deem as success, what you deem as enough. There are forces at play that seek to stoke the fires of unfulfilled desire, such that you may long for the things of the world there are forces at play. There are claims and simultaneous counterclaims being made about what life is to truly be about. And as followers of Jesus, we need the gift of discernment to make sure our faith is not co-opted and corrupted or disproportionately influenced in ungodly ways by the war of narratives happening around us. And this is our claim. Our claim is that all other stories, all other narratives will ultimately fail you. We have a compelling alternative story, the way of Jesus, the way of his kingdom, the way of the cross, the resurrection of Christ and his return. Ours is a compelling story and we need to be grounded in a robust theology that cannot be dismissed. I believe the way of Christ, our story, gives the most compelling answers to the questions of the world. And that's what we attempt to do on Sundays, to identify our cultural moments, stuff that we are battling against, to ground ourselves in Scripture, God's narrative, such that we may resist the pull of culture and live in a contrary manner. Titus 1 9, says this, he must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught so that he can encourage others by the sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. I have a um, decent ground to cover but let me just give you a personal note real quick. Now, I love sermons. I love listening to other people. I love books. I love to read a lot. I like podcasts. I like to run. When I run, if I run, I, I do it with podcasts. Uh, I just like podcasts, you know, and I listen to like Gladwell and Bernie Brown and all that kind of stuff. But hear me in saying this. you know, this, this is what I want to say to you. Much of the content we listen to can be inspired, but they are no, by no means authoritative. They can be inspired by Scripture, by the Spirit, but they do not carry authority. Only scripture, God's word, is inspired and authoritative. And we need to come back in, in light of all of the content options that we have. We need to come back to a holy radical allegiance to the word of God. It making sense? Because if scripture alone is not your final authority, you will invariably become slave to another authority. And when that, when that lesser authority is subjugated, Yourself to fail you, you will be disillusioned and in disarray. We need to have our narrative shaped by scripture and the spirit. The rest is commentary. Is that making sense? Okay, next observation: power that cannot be denied. It says this in 1 Corinthians 4. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of talk, but of power. That word power is dunamis. So we get the word dynamite from. Is it. this demonstrative, explosive kind of power, and that is what we need in the church. It would do us good to realize that a staggering 38.5% of the stories in the four Gospels is about healing, It's about a demonstration of God's supernatural power. In the Gospels, we see an immediate connection between the inbreaking of God's kingdom in the person of Jesus with the proclamation of the gospel good news and healing. And through healing, Jesus gave his audience a glimpse of what the fullness of God would look like. There were signs or pointers to the future kingdom, finding expression in the here and now. And as a church, we need to move from simply being theologically charismatic, yet functionally cessationist, to people being empowered by the Spirit, able to demonstrate God's power in the face of need. Now I was talking to a friend who does kids' ministry, and he was telling me about these kids who have grown up for a bit, you know, and today they're still following Jesus, you know, they're in their teens and passionate about God, and I was just talking to him about it, and he told me one of the key ingredients in seeing them mature into a steadfast kind of discipleship Jesus is their exposure to God's power from a young age, that from a young age, even in kids' ministry, they were witnessing God's miraculous power, they were prophesying, they were praying for others, they were seeing people healed. And because of that experience, coupled with sound teaching, they are grounded in their discipleship. Perhaps we need to gather that what is to combat the trend or the tide of cynicism, skepticism that we're seeing in our world today is not better programs or better content, but exposure to God's glory and power. And it's church, We are responsible for that. We are to be a place where heaven touches earth. We are to be a place where God's undeniable power is seen, such that the world may believe. Making sense? And the last is this, love that cannot be deterred. Love that cannot be deterred. And what is... You know, one word to sum up what the early church community was, it was a community of love. Intense, robust love. Not the feel-goody kind, but a love that is tested and forged by fire. And to the Jews, sharing of your needs, sharing of what you were lacking, was uh, essentially, you know, a, a display of shame, you know, for the Jews, right, not having enough, or being in lack is a sign of God's disapproval toward you. It could be a sign of sin. And so sharing of your need was an immensely shameful thing. I read in a book once that said that to the Jews, poverty and death are essentially the same thing because in both are the absence of options. And so being poor, being found lacking, is immensely shameful. And so we observe in this community that they had the relational depth to share, but they also had the spiritual depth a depth of love to give to one another beyond their own immediate concerns. And this reveals the kind of deep devotion they had to one another. Now, it's easy, of course, to be devoted to your family members or to ones that you get along with or have common interests with. But consider the disciples, who they were. You had Simon the Zealot and Matthew the tax collector in the same group. A zealot was a political revolutionary, sabotaging the Roman Empire with guerrilla tactics. They were violent, disruptive individuals who hated the Romans and all they stood for. And then you had Matthew, who was a tax collector, who was literally on Rome's payroll, living together, and not just that, loving one another. It was a transcendent love. a transcendent love. It, It brings to mind that image of Jesus on the cross, who, with his final words, final breath, proclaim forgiveness to the thief that was next to him on the cross in order for Roman centurion to go, truly, this man must be the son of God. How did this Roman centurion, who had probably seen a thousand crucifixions up to that point, go, this man is the son of God. Perhaps he had never seen a man die with a prayer of love and forgiveness on his lips. It was a transcendent love that led to that realization and revelation that there must be a God. And what if, as a church, we can model such transcendence in the way we love one another and reveal God in our love? That's why we think of the words of Jesus. They will know that you are my disciples by your love for one another. Not the soundness of your argument, nor the sleekness of your program, nor the sound of your singing, but by your love. By your love. And that is the ex-church as we bring this to a landing shortly. Not just a church that met in homes. Many of us are quick to reduce the ex-church to their methodology. Or the ex-church, they are a church that met in homes. It's not just about that. But they were a compelling community that displayed the fruits of the kingdom in the way they lived their life. Think about that. That they were a church in deep persecution and hardship. And yet they were able to advance the kingdom of God in such a significant way. Now, what excuse do we have But well, we have the same spirit that is among us? Sadly, when we read of this Acts 2 committee, we don't see nor hear many of such committees today, particularly in the first world context. Consider a pastor's rewriting of Acts chapter 2. He says this, They studied the apostles' teaching when they had time. They went to fellowship when they could fit in. They prayed when they needed something and got coffee together every now and then. They were content without and had low expectation for signs and wonders in their midst. They sometimes talked about generosity but kept all of their possessions for themselves. Two out of five Sundays they came to corporate gatherings. They didn't invite people into their homes and rarely revealed their hearts. They were largely irrelevant to all the people and occasionally someone was randomly saved. <laughs> and so let us consider where we're at today as a church. Are we more in line with the biblical Acts 2? or with our culture's rewriting of X 2. Mark Sayers, a pastor, writes this, the elephant in the living room of contemporary Christianity is people's ability to simply sit in church, to consume the experience the way one would a great sporting event, a thrilling movie, or an exciting theme park ride, right, and then to dispose of it, totally unchanged at the soul level as they leave the sanctuary. Sure, they might feel challenged, encouraged, or even moved, but the horizontal self simply feels the experience and moves on. Worship service becomes pseudo-media event. Church building becomes theme park. Christian leader becomes Christian celebrity. Teaching becomes entertainment. Salvation becomes self-help. Discipleship becomes lifestyle enhancement. Gospel becomes slogan. Hear me in saying this. The biblical vision for life, for the church, is not that we will live with either comfort or exhaustion, but that we will follow Jesus' direction in following Him and pouring our lives out for the kingdom. Because in between boredom and burnt out, aimlessly wandering and drive, apathy and ambition, is this beautiful, sacred place and pace of following Jesus, walking His ways, His will, His purpose. And that is the church. It's not just a building you go to. It's not just an event you attend. Or an experience you consume, but it is the people of God together responding to God's vision in His word, committed to His kingdom, bringing the realities of God to our world. That is the church. That is what we are about. Amen? Now uh, I'd like to show uh, queue up some plans that we're having up having uh, for, uh, the year you know as we close um, that will help us inch toward this vision of becoming more like the x2 community to move away from a cultural x2 towards a biblical X2 first up is this you know uh, we have a few plans first off it's alpha course we're running alpha course again yay in July I love the alpha course I have such great affection for the alpha course and I believe that all of you should and I believe all of us you know need to have the reality of heaven being a place where there are no people who do not profess Jesus a lot. You a know, Lord. There, there won't be unsaved people in heaven, basically, right? And I think we need to let that reality be seared in our hearts and fuel a sense of urgency in being bold witnesses for the gospel. And the Alpha Course is a brilliant way that you can do so. And so I encourage you to check out the Alpha Course. Next is Sick First Prayer. We have been running prayer for a few months already. I encourage you to jump in on th- those prayer sessions because hear me saying that something significant happens wherever he's, God's people pray. We are sowing prayer into our city. Yeah. It's extremely powerful. We're actually standing together. I believe something profound is happening in the spirit. So I urge you to be a part of that. Come host God's presence together with us in the city. We have a couple of slots now, but hopefully down the road we'll have more thoughts once more people are involved. Next thing is this this is an area of need. As many of you have seen the church growing numerically, we have a lot of new people have recently joined us. And and also with with regards to uh, safe distancing, the current limitations, groups can't operate past a certain size. And this actually presents to us a brilliant opportunity for us to adapt, be nimble, be dexterous, if there's such a word, and lean into that. And that means that our groups can pivot towards becoming smaller. Perhaps your groups uh, pre-pandemic were running like 30 people, and 30 people, though fun, though it is a party, mm-hmm. let's be honest here, life on life doesn't really happen. True, robust discipleship, it's pretty tough to facilitate with 30 people. So groups should be smaller. And so this is a call to all of you all to bring your leadership to a church. And so we want to make a call for groups to multiply, for there to be more leaders raised in our midst, for more people to take up the baton and call in facilitating communities for love, for vulnerability, but also for discipleship. You can bring yourself to the table. Come out of your comfort zones and let's watch what God will do in and through you. And so multiplying leaders and groups. All right, our next plan we would like to share is that, um, you know, this is our second plan uh, double service Sunday. Uh, we don't have a name for it yet. Some call it double Sunday. I prefer the language Super Sunday, but my team is like, horrible name, Andre, Vito, turn it down. And so between you and me, let's call it Super Sunday. Right? This is a pretty private group. No one's really watching, so Super Sunday. If we keep saying it, it will be a thing, right? Super Sunday, right? And so our plan really, you know, uh, hear me saying this. So I heard of this occurrence where um, you know, many of you know that our services are, tend to be very full and packed and you have to scramble to get tickets uh, and you have to, like, you know, really exhibit all of, like, Singapore and like, our, our cultural core values, uh, you know, and all of stuff, to get tickets, yeah. that one I never heard before. But now I heard this occurrence where someone showed up to church, uh, level one, and they didn't book a ticket and our service was full and we had to turn the person away. Now that doesn't sit well with me because philosophically I do not believe that we are to be a place that ever turns someone away, right? You know, And along with that, one of the words I got uh, as I was praying for the church and thinking about all these questions I brought up, is that God is calling for us to be tangibly, tangibly present, to contend for his tangible presence. I believe there's tremendous significance when his people get out of their comforts, make a sacrifice. Some of you, it's a real sacrifice to come here, show up, committed to participate in God's favor upon his people when they they, they do that. And his presence comes in a significant way. I believe it's significant, it's powerful, and we should do it. And so what we are planning to do is we are planning to inch towards being able to run two services from the month of August onwards. Of course, this is done in consultation with our ministry heads, we have all of y'all. We understand there are many real concerns. And this is a tentative plan. We're working our way to get there. And what are the values to which we should have caught from the year of experience is that is this. We lean into the spirit. We're nimble. We have dexterity. We are able to adapt. And that is what is, will be required of us. That's the kind of muscles we need to build to survive uh, for the church to thrive in the seasons that are to come. And so weekly two services in August. Does this sound beautiful? Yes? Does this sound beautiful? I think so. I think so. I'm so excited at the possibility of making room, more room for people to encounter God and you guys. Last is this. I'd like to introduce what I call core pursuits. And of course, I'm loose with this language. This um, is not something that uh, we are sticking with, you know, but um, what core pursuits are is I think it's a further clarification. It's a deepening of our understanding of what our passion statement is, which is to Thank you. If you forgot, you have a cup at home that literally has it on there. That is why we gave you all the cup. So when you drink your coffee, you'll be like, we exist to help all people be Jesus, become a Jesus and do the works of Jesus in our city. Right. Come on, folks, do not break my heart on Sunday morning. Um call pursuits. And so, you know, it's a further clarification and deepening of what we understand our passion statement to be. I would like to share. These guiding values and vision and goals that we have as a leadership for our community to pursue, this will help frame all our initiatives, all our teachings. And the three values are, first off, tangible presence. We want to be a people who host God's presence and see His power demonstrated. It's tangible presence, not just a head knowledge, but something felt, experienced, and seen in God's glory. And next is this, we want to be a people that grow to be resilient disciples. We have a pursuit of resilient discipleship. So we a people who are deeply spiritually formed, counter formation against the narratives of our world. There's much that seeks to form us. We want to be resilient in every regard so that we may stand against those forces. And the last is this, is missional communities. Is that we will grow to be a community that don't just exist for ourselves, for our own pleasure, but we will grow to be outward looking, to seek to save the lost, just as Jesus did, to serve communities who are in need, to be missional. That is why we're gathered. You know, there are many communities in the world. F 45 Spin Class, those are communities. But what makes us distinct as a people of God is that we are marked by His presence, is that we are missional, seeking to save and serve. Now, in closing, before we go to video, I know I'm running a bit late. Sorry, team. Um uh, Watching a lot of Korean movies, they bow a lot. Uh, now, the privilege and challenge of my position is that I get all of your lovely feedback. Love it. Uh, privilege and challenge. I, I get to hear what you're really thinking and what really concerns you. Uh, you know, and some of the stuff I hear is this. I hear, I hear, like, I wish our church was more prophetic. I wish our church was more... Into miracles. We saw more miracles. I wish our church cared more about justice. I wish our church cared more about theology and wrestling through theological issues. I wish our church cared more about cultural issues. I wish our church was this. I wish our church was that. Now, hear me in saying this. I am with you 100%. I want our church to be all of that. Hear me in saying this as well. It is the integration of all things, not one above the other, that produces the kind of people. That God is calling us to be. Yeah. I have a vendor that I prepared. It's really small, so you need supernatural eyes. But you know, I've I basically broken up our, our, our passion statement be, become, and do. And I'm making the case here for a holistic, whole discipleship because if you pivot to one over the other, you pivot one over the other, it leads to a kind of deep spiritual consequence. For example, if all you care about is becoming like Jesus, doing the works of Jesus, and you do not know how to abide in His presence, it to burn out and spiritual fatigue, if all you care about is becoming and being and you don't do the works of Jesus, it leads to apathy towards the world and a consumeristic framework or mindset towards the world. We need to be whole disciples who embody the whole gospel so that the whole world may be saved. We need that kind of holistic discipleship people. Now, I desire a church that loves the Spirit and loves the Word. I desire a church that is wildly charismatic picture like flags and all that kind of stuff i love that and yet deeply contemplative i desire a church that has robust theology and undeniable power i desire a church that loves both the table and the stage life-on-life fellowship in homes and the power of our gatherings i desire a church that is open to all that the spirit wants to do and yet it's grounded in theology in faithful orthodoxy, in the wisdom of fathers who have gone before us. Hear me. We can have the fullness of God in Christ Jesus. Resist the idea that one has to come at the expense of the other. Pursue the fullness of God through this call to discipleship with all of our hearts, soul, mind, and strength until the kingdoms of the earth become the kingdom of our God. This is what we are about. This is what this church is about. We pursue God's kingdom together on earth as it is in heaven. Now, as promised, I have a lovely video for you. And this video uh, is a bunch of stories that we have gathered from folks uh, who experienced the last year and yet deepened their communities and their walk with God uh, and leaned into it as a crucible moment. So enjoy the video and I'll come back shortly to close us in prayer. Thank you you know i think uh, a group that uh we've we've thanked often is, uh, the staff and the volunteers and so uh for you know the last year we make it a point to thank them and appreciate them for uh, the job that they do in sustaining uh the life of the church but there's a group that uh, i'd like to take the opportunity to thank uh because without them you know i i i, I don't think uh, the Church will be sustained in a new way. And that is our life group leaders. Yeah. Life group leaders have really fought hard to keep everyone connected. Whole. Oh, and so thank you, life group leaders. Thank you, life group leaders. Thank you, thank you so much. Thank you. And that's the common thread in all the stories. It was the life groups, it was the community that kept them going. And you know, after hearing all that we have heard in, in the teaching, this acts to a church. Seem a bit far out and abstract, right? Wow, robust energy, undeniable power, love that can't be deterred. Like, how do we even get there in the first place? Well, you know, I I think you know we have a ways to go, and thankfully we have years to traverse this path together. But it starts really simply with that word that we just heard: making room. Making room in our schedules to meet. Making room in our hearts to receive all the Spirit. All that Spirit wants to do and give to us might be as simple as making room in your homes, preparing a seat at the table so that someone else may experience love, welcome, belonging, and come into wholeness. It's about making room. So that's my call for our church this Vision Sunday. As we respond to that biblical call, it's simple. Let us make room together. We're doing the practical thing. We're making room in our service. But let's also do the spiritual thing. Let's make room in our hearts and say, God, come and do what you want to do. Shake my imaginations. Break me out of the box. Break, break. Tear out the box I put you in. Meet with me, oh Lord. Do a deep work in our community. So I ask, right, if you would, just put a hand on the person. Put a hand on the shoulder of the person right and left and I humbly ask right now as a community, let's together in our own way ask for the Holy Spirit to be upon our church come in our own way, lift your voice and let's posture our hearts say God we make room for you come Spirit come Holy Spirit come wind come breath come fire come teacher come counselor come Holy Spirit of God Touch our community. We pray, Lord. We desire to see your power in our midst. We desire to see your glory revealed. We desire to grow in theology. We desire to grow in love. Come, God, do a deep work in your people. We lean into you this morning. Spirit, come, fill us with power of God. Come on, lift your voice. Holy Spirit, come, come in power. Jesus.